This program provides education, not advice. Sponsors pay a fee for endorsements and interviews. See the truthayf.com disclosure page for details. This is where technology, innovation, and personal finance come together. This is the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. Brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions. And by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ, Invesco Distributors, Inc. And by Presidio, offering a digital vault where you can collect, protect, and share all your important people, places, things, and documents with all the key people in your life. Start for free at Presidio.com. It's Friday, August 11th. On today's show, how to choose the right financial advisor for you. 48% of retirees say they have experienced more surprises and challenges than they expected and that they have significantly disrupted their retirement well-being. What are these surprises and challenges? Most commonly, having a family member or close friend die. 42% say they've had this happen to them. 77% of them say it was an extremely disruptive event. Also, personal health issues. 30% have experienced this, half saying it was extremely disruptive. A spouse or partner having health issues. 21% incurred this. 42% say it was extremely disruptive. And 56% of women say they've had to adjust their lifestyle in retirement because of their spouse or partner's health issues. 20% have also experienced a significant financial setback. Inflation, the cost of living, medical dental expenses, unexpected home repairs, decline in the value of investments, the need to provide financial assistance of family members or friends. 75% of retirees say they've had to reduce their own everyday spending. And finally, unexpected retirement. 30% of retirees say they retired sooner than they anticipated. They suffered unexpected health issues, or they got laid off at work in a downsizing, or they've had to incur family responsibilities such as caregiving for someone else. All of that translating into them retiring sooner, and that has had a big impact not only on their lifestyle, but their finances. In fact, the number of people who had to take hardship withdrawals from their 401k rose 33% over the past year, the average withdrawal over $5,100. So as you prepare for retirement, you need to accelerate those plans. I'm not saying you should retire sooner. I'm saying you need to assume that you might have to and that it might be because of reasons that give you a significant disruptive event talk about it with a financial advisor. If you are a financial advisor, talk about this with your clients who are facing retirement. Do they recognize the risks associated with having family members pass away, incurring medical issues themselves or their spouses, financial setbacks, or unexpected retirement because of job loss or family issues? Now's the time to prepare before you experience any of this. Coming up next, a conversation with Matt Bartell, the guy behind the rankings of the top advisors in the nation from Barron's.
landmark infrastructure legislation was passed in the last Congress. Now comes the work of getting it built. The Global X U.S. Infrastructure Development ETF, ticker PAVE, invests in dozens of companies helping shape the future of American infrastructure. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Investments in infrastructure-related companies have greater exposure to the potential adverse economic, regulatory, political, and other changes affecting such entities. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Company. Meet Schwab Intelligent Income, a simple, modern way to pay yourself from your portfolio. Overcome the complexity of income needs in retirement with automated tax-smart withdrawals that you can start, stop, or adjust at any time without penalty, plus ongoing monitoring so you'll always know where you stand. And since lower fees means more money for you to invest, you pay no advisory fee. Available with Schwab Intelligent Portfolios. Visit schwab.com slash intelligent income, a modern approach to wealth management. You're listening to The Truth About Your Future. Well, if you've been listening to my radio show and podcast for the past several decades, you know that I've been several times ranked the number one independent advisor in America by Barron's. And you know that the firm that I founded, Edelman Financial, was ranked the number one firm in the nation multiple times by Barron's and is still ranked the number one firm in the nation by Barron's. How does that happen? Where does that come from? Well, this is the guy. Let me introduce you to Matt Bartell. He's the executive editor of Dow Jones Wealth and Asset Management Group. Matt is the guy who is responsible for running the rankings at Barron's. Matt, it's uh, great to see you, my friend. How are you? Rick, very good to see you too. And, uh, you know, congratulations on all your past success. And uh, it's not just me. <laughs> There's plenty of other people working on it, but uh, lo- love, to, love to be the face of it. They can get someone more handsome. Uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll accept you. Um, you know, Matt's been a financial journalist for 30 years, went to Notre Dame, although, Matt, you love to say you have absolutely no sense of humor when it comes to Notre Dame football. Um, so we won't talk about Notre Dame football. But let's do talk about the rankings because this came out of nowhere and it was an incredibly necessary and important need. You have filled a huge hole, a gap that existed in the advisory field, not just for the advisors who participate in the rankings, but more importantly for the investors who seek out these rankings. Because we're dealing with investment advisors who collectively, what, there's 300,000 of us in the industry, and we're collectively managing, I don't know how many tens of trillions of dollars that all of these advisors and all of these firms are managing. And we're managing all of these trillions of dollars on behalf of ordinary Americans, everyday families, as well as high net worth individuals who are seeking to secure their financial future. In the old days, you know, if we go back well long before you and I were born, the, the whole shtick to investing was picking the right stocks, picking the right investments. Today, it's all about picking the right investment advisor because the world has gotten so complicated. Most of us don't have the knowledge, the skills, the time, or the desire to do it on our own. So we're delegating. We're hiring people to do it for us. But how do you know who to turn to? Who do you trust? How do you know what the services they provide and the credentials that they offer and and the fees that they charge and, and all that kind of good stuff? And there was no way to answer that question. Along came Barron's. And you have now championed this notion of ranking the very best advisors in the industry. And I think for most folks, it's a little bit of a black box. They don't know how you go about doing it. And that's why I'm excited to hear today to pull back the curtain 
You know more about advisors than anybody in the industry. You collect data on thousands of advisors. Talk about how you go through the process of identifying the nation's best financial advisors. Well, all right. Well, that's my job. And uh, the, the one thing I'll put on it up front is the, the thing that's increasingly difficult to do is to separate individual advisors uh, from the teams or organizations that they work on. Um, when I started doing this, I'm 15 years into, into, into doing this for Barron's now, do, uh, you know, working on rankings. And when we started doing it, you know very well, you, you yourself were the head of a, of, a, of a big organization that wasn't quite as gigantic as it is right now. Um, and, you, you know, you were an advisor who set investment policy for a whole bunch of people. And, uh, you know, you had ultimate responsibility for how things went on that. Right. right it was right. pretty easy to separate individual advisors from the organizations they worked with, or at least say how much of what's going on is attributable to that advisor, turn it into a metric and, and rank them. Um, that's getting harder and harder and harder because the organizations are um, the teams that they're working on and the firms that they're working on are getting bigger, more horizontal, uh, you know, and having a whole bunch of more capabilities. That's all very good news for people who are looking for financial advice. Uh, it's uh, it complicates our job a little bit because we're trying to figure out how to move from just ranking individual advisors to uh, which people in America love. They love to hear the name of the person, right? Uh, to ranking the organizations as well and, and pointing people at organizations, which are going to be more enduring, right? Than, than just a person who might retire or, or whatever. But back to your main question, um, how do we do it? We we measure uh, a whole bunch of metrics. First thing is there aren't, there's no um, subjective element, you know, Matt, thinks Rick is very, very good for his purposes or evaluates him and says, you know, Rick, Rick ought to be really high, highly ranked in these rankings or get some points because I've done some evaluation on that front. Our stuff is metrics based. Our rankings are metrics based. We uh, look at the assets that the advisors manage, the, the revenue that they gather, which I'll get to. Uh, a lot of people ask, why do you care how much revenue an advisor gathers? And there's a reason for that. And then there's 15 or 16 quality measures uh, that are, you know, their ability to service clients, essentially, put into a big calculator, basically. And, and after we get all the metrics uh, scrubbed and measured out, uh, it, it creates a ranking. Assets, I'll, I'll do a real quick thing. Assets are a good measure. The growth of assets are a good measure of the health of a practice and you know, whether an advisor is somebody who's constantly self-evaluating, not complacent, moving forward. It's kind of, uh, I always say it's like uh, the bubbler in a fish tank. You got one of them, you're okay. You don't have one of them, the water gets very murky and still and dead pretty quick. Revenue, the reason we care about revenue is it is the fees that clients pay to advisors is the best proxy for client satisfaction that we know of. We're in a world of Amazon, you know, rating four stars, five stars, giving a, an Uber driver, a rating of, of something after you used it. That's useful, but we've all read an Amazon review where someone says the packaging was broken, one star. And that says nothing about, about the product itself, right? Yep. So the, you know, you really know what people are doing when they are saying, yes, I see value for the whatever amount I'm paying this advisor and I'm sticking with this advisor. So the retention rates and the, the amount that they're paying are really, really good proxies for us of client satisfaction. And then these quality of practice measures that we have are, you know, how long have you been in the industry? What does your regulatory record look like? How many people do you have on your team? 
How old are they? Are they staggered out or is it just a whole bunch of 62 year old people who are going to retire all at the same time, leaving their clients in a lurch, right? How many households do you have? How many assets? We triangulate between that and the people on the staff to, to arrive at your ability to service clients. I could go on and on. There's a bunch of charitable and philanthropic work. And again, so all, all of those things, I won't kill you with any more detail than that, but uh, those are the three basic categories, assets, the revenue and fees that they gather, and then the quality of their practice. And you mentioned that it's increasingly challenging because many uh, successful advisors, most of the successful ones, I would argue, are growing in size to the point where they're not sole practitioners anymore. They're part of big teams, building big teams, leading big teams. And so you're finding it a bit of a challenge there. And I think this is reflective in the fact that your rankings have changed. In the old days, you had one list. There was the list of the top advisors. Now you have multiple lists. You have a list of top advisors. You have a list of top independent advisors. You have a list of top teams, top firms. You have top women. So talk about the growth of the lists and how they are reflecting the changing nature of the advisory field. Okay. So one of, one of the most important things about the, the different types of lists is that there are different types of advisors. Uh, there are RAAs, there are independent broker dealers, and there are advisors who work at the big brokerage firms like Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch. Um, you know, I, I, I know you've talked about this on the show uh, before, but, you know, the, the regulatory structure around the, the, the wealth management industry is a mess. Um, you know, a, a, anybody who would, who would uh, find a, a, any of the people that I know who I associate with friends and stuff where I tell them that, a lot of their uh, those people who are advisors out there are not held to a fiduciary standard to to do work in the best interest of their clients um, are flabbergasted that that is the case um, and it is pretty pretty ridiculous when you really get down to it that there's this patchwork of different um, standards that different kinds of wealth managers are held to uh, on how they have to um, deal with their clients so we do have different um, rankings. Some for independents, RAAs who are held to a fiduciary standard who have to act in the best interest in their clients. Um, and then we have kings that are aimed at uh, advisors who work for brokerage organizations who are held only to a suitability standard, meaning they have to put clients in investments that are suitable to their needs and their risk appetite, but uh, they don't necessarily have to find, for instance, the cheapest uh, uh, investing option that is you know, risk appropriate. Uh, they could do something that's, that's good for them. Again, a lot of people you know, who don't know a lot or who haven't taken a lot of time to dive into the industry are flabbergasted that that's the case, but it is. Um, that does not mean that anybody who works at Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or UBS is a bad advisor. Uh, many of them, probably most of the ones that we deal with are dealing as, as, as fiduciaries or working as fiduciaries uh, because it, it would be terrible business for them not to. <laughs> uh, they'd lose clients pretty quickly if they weren't doing a good job of it. But the fact exists that that the the uh, patchwork, the regulatory patchwork, is not serving clients very well. It's not serving end investors very well, and it's particularly not serving people who don't spend all their time looking at the industry trying to figure it out very well. Okay, so we have different lists. Uh, we have eight different lists now. So um, individual advisors, we rank them, uh, we break them out by state ge geographically. That's the biggest and broadest one that we do. Uh, you mentioned that there's 300,000 advisors in this country. For our purposes, we look at that more like 120 to 150,000 of advisors who do this for a vocation, who are really, truly doing advisory work, not 
CPAs who kind of have the, the licensure and so forth that they need to, to call themselves an advisor. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying they're not full-blown full advisors the way some of the others are. That geographic ranking is a top 1,200 ranking. We consider it roughly a top 1% ranking. And then we do a bunch of top 100 rankings, top 100 women in the United States, top 100 independent advisors, those are the fiduciaries, uh, top 100 uh, just the top 100, the one we've been doing since uh, 2004, but that has evolved into uh, mostly a wirehouse uh, ranking advisors who work at these big firms like Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch. Um, and then we do a, a ranking in Australia, which we were just talking about and working on right now. Um, and we have a, a couple of teams rankings and organizational rankings that are coming in. And those increasingly are the main event for us. Uh, private wealth teams, uh, teams that deal with families and individuals, uh, institutional consulting teams, those who deal with um, institutions, uh, pension funds and endowments and foundations. And then we rank RAA firms, so independent firms, which are the fastest growing segment of the population into which Edelman Financial Engines, that's the category they're in uh, for those purposes. So that's a lot. And you can tell that things have gotten more complicated. That's basically the, what that's reflecting. And we're trying to figure out uh, the best way to kind of point people who are looking for guidance and looking for good advisors at, at places they can find them. And uh, increasingly these organizational uh, rankings are the place we're going, private wealth teams, institutional teams, and RA firms. And within this huge array of advisors, 120,000 in the universe that you're looking at, boiling it down to the top 1% for the state lists that you have of 1,200 advisors, and then the smaller lists of the top 100, that's the, the cream of the cream. Uh, and when you look at all of this, I, I mean, I know the answer to this, but I want you to say it for the sake of the audience. There is an incredible diversity in the array of services and the types of clients each of these advisors choose to work for. Talk about what you discover in this incredible array of variety in the industry. So there's there's been a, a big change in the last four or five years of, you know, it, it, it used to be almost every advisor would talk to you about, you'd sit down with them, they'd talk to you about your investments. How are they doing? They'd give you a you know, a flip chart or a PowerPoint presentation that said, this is your risk appetite. This is what we put you in. This is, these are your returns. These are your fees. This is how it's going. Increasingly, you're going to have to do a good job of that as an advisor. That's why people go to you. You have to do a good job with the investments. But uh, increasingly, clients are expecting that you're going to do a good job of that. And they're like, you know, show, show me that in five minutes that it's going, that it's going well, not 45 minutes of stuff I don't understand about how I'm in alternative investments, whose free structure I can't even possibly comprehend. Show me that things are going well. Uh, show me what my fee schedule is and, and how and why that's there. And then um, now, now it's sort of, what else can we do for you? And advisors are really differentiating themselves if they're smart. The best of them are have really, really good uh, idea of what their value proposition is. So for instance, many um, of the of the best teams are hiring uh, estate attorneys uh, on their teams uh, where they used to kind of have partnerships outside. Many of the best um, advisors are hiring them and saying, if you come to us, we can handle everything you need to do from wills to taxes to, you know, how are you going to hand down money to people in your family? Um, and, you know, we can do that soup to nuts and it will be somebody who really knows you, who knows chapter and verse about everything that you're doing. And those conversations get very, very deep very quickly when you have that. 
the teams are, as I said, are, are establishing these value propositions around what they're really, really good at and what can separate them from, from other people. So if you're looking for an advisor or if you're interviewing an advisor to consider using them uh, and becoming a client, you know, one of the first things you'd want to ask, I would think, uh, and I just did this myself, by the way, um, is um, what services do you offer? What are the range of services that you're offering? And, you know, what are you really, really good at? Uh, what am I paying for? And am I using all of the things that you're putting on the plate for me? One of the things I found myself, this is what I do for a living all day long is talk to advisors. And a couple of years back, I had an advisor uh, who was very good. I like her very much. Uh, 10-year relationship, 11-year relationship. And I got to a point where I'm like, hey, listen, I'm paying almost 1% of, of my assets to you. Um, I don't use most of what's there. Really, what's happening is you're doing my investing and I don't use anything else. What are the other things that I should be using from you? It wasn't a really great answer for that. And I've retreated and I'm saving myself $10,000 a year in fees by, by using somebody. I use everything that the person whose work I'm working with now is, is doing for me. I use it to, to its fullest extent. And if I step over that, she charges me. And that's perfectly fine with me. So um, this thing of there's a, a really wide range of, of services and value propositions, which sounds business schooly and jargony, but it's it's a legit thing, right? Where um there's there's an advisor that we that we work with. I'll just I'm going on a little side tangent here on on a value proposition, but um she is a really, really good independent advisor. She dropped out of the industry, got a law degree, and then attended the Ron Perlman Ellen Barkin divorce proceedings. So a billionaire. Uh, and an actress uh, divorcing and learned everything there was to learn about uh, what it is to be a, a woman going through one of these divorces and what the finances look like on the tail end of this thing. Um, that's her value proposition now. It's like 80% of her practice now, right? So when when looking for an advisor, that's probably the best thing you can ask is, you know, what do you do really well? What are you charging me for? And are these things aligned with the things that that I need? And as you're looking at my stuff, what is something maybe I'm not thinking about that I ought to be thinking about? Maybe you can maybe you can help me out with that. Um, but as you mentioned, a lot of different flavors now developing. The investing portion of it is table stakes, and now the the range of services are getting very 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 broad. Um, it can be anything from you know trying to find a yacht for you uh, down to if you're a person like me who can't afford a yacht, um, you know just down to how much are they helping you with you know. Uh, saving for college, but maybe they know somebody who's really good at getting your kid into college, right? There are people who who uh, follow those sorts of you know value added kind of kind of things. So that's part of the interview process. I think if you're looking at an advisor's, what services do they offer? I think you've really made it a whole lot simpler for everybody because this subject is so intimidating, Matt, as you know, to most Americans. We are not educated or skilled or trained in the subject of personal finance, and we're intimidated by the subject of money because we don't have a lot of knowledge and experience with it. And you've made it really simple by helping people realize you don't have to become an expert about money. All you need to be is an expert about you. You know what your needs are. You know what your concerns are. And if all you can do is articulate your fears, your aspirations, your goals, your objectives to a prospective advisor to say, here's what is worrying me. Tell me how you would be able to help me. 
And what am I not mentioning that I ought to be mentioning? What is it I haven't even thought of that you can say to me, oh, have you thought about X? That's how I'll be able to determine whether there's value in us having a relationship together. And I think you're exactly right because there are so many different types of clients who are dealing with types of issues and there's so many types of specialties in the field of personal finance. No advisor can be an expert in everything. And this will help you find the advisor that's right for you. I would imagine that you would say, you haven't, so I'm going to put words in your mouth, Matt, that you would shop around when you're seeking an advisor. I was just, Rick, I was just going to say that very thing. If you were building a patio out back, you'd get three estimates, right? You talk to three guys, you know, you, you, you'd have three people come back there and tell you what it is. And you'd find out one of them's a charlatan, right? <laughs> or whatever, right? Or this, this person is, is $4,000 over the other two. Why? Uh, and you can ask that. Why? Why are you over uh, $4,000? And they may say, he may say, she may say, uh, you know, we're better. And here's the reasons we're better. And maybe that's worth it to you, right? And there, there is no accounting, uh, um, honestly, for you know, what you're going to want from an advisor. We have um, uh, my old coworker, Sterling Shea, who now works at Morgan Stanley, but we were, you know, I like to say, you know, our married couple at work for many years here at Barron's. Uh, when we were doing a um, research in the UK, he met with somebody at one of the custodial firms who was lamenting that his father was a client of a firm I won't mention, who was, who was paying 4% uh, of, which is a lot, of his assets, a 4% fee to his firm, uh, wealth management firm that has existed since the 1600s in England. And he's like, dad, you, you cannot do this. This is, it's way too much money. I, for starters, look like a fool having a father who's paying this much money. And he says, I go in there three days a week. They have a room for me. They have my tea the way I want it. They show me how it's doing every day. Sometimes I go in twice a day. I am a high, you know, touch, high value guy. I am fine with it. They are outpacing that. I'm still growing at that. I'm okay with that. So, Look, I'm not, no one's going to pay 4%, but it's like, there isn't any accounting for what that, that value is, is, is up to you. Um, and you have to decide what kind of value that advisor is bringing to you. Um, but it starts with asking what they're going to do for you. And while I'm mentioning England, UK, they have something that I wish we had here, which is they have a one page disclosure, fee disclosure that every client gets. And it says at the bottom, how much did you pay? You know, how much do you have with them? How much did you pay? There's no pages after pages of this. And then there's a fee attached to this. And then we build it into that and we take it out of there. I mean, even I can't quite figure that out, right? And again, I do this for a living. And I hope that a developed country like that influences us as this works its way through the, the regulatory stuff. And uh, maybe maybe it comes back to this fiduciary standard just being broadened and, and maybe simplified for people. I think that would be a great starting point for helping people choose advisors is, how much am I paying and what am I paying for, right? And some, as you noted, people are often willing to overpay if they are getting perceived value for it. And a big element of this is the fact that this is not a commodity. Uh, this is very much a very deep, intimate, personal relationship. You have to have a connection with this individual. That's a big part of it. Talk about how you evaluate that. Well, I, I, I say sometimes where, you know, there are people who compare financial advisors to doctors in ways. There, there are ma massive differences, but there's a lot of professional commitment, all that stuff. And it's super important to you if you're going to a doctor. My, my father was a guy who was like, I'm a slab of meat. Do not talk to me. Do not be distracted. I don't need you to hold my hand. I don't even want to know anything. About, I want to know that you're a good surgeon and do not be distracted. Do a good job. 
My mother is like, you can leave a scissor inside of me after you get done cutting me open. If you talk to me well, if you're a good talker, um, you know, there it's, it's all over the map in terms of what people would be looking for from their advisors and, and what they want from them. So, you know, that, that is um, a super important part of establishing who, who you're talking to and, and how the character increasingly with these teams, if you have an advisor who has a personality, um, how does that personality, if he's got 22 people or, you know, if, if someone is, is heading up a team and has 22 people working on that team, how does the personality of that person you're dealing with find its way into the team? Um, how does that create a culture that's going to endure past when that person who's 59 years old is going to retire and, you know, you're still going to be with the, with the firm? But how does that get into the rankings? Um, it gets into the rankings. This is the nice thing about it is I don't have to evaluate how good a job Rick does at connecting with his clients. Um, Rick is going to do a job of connecting with his clients and finding who his people are. And if he doesn't have a good value proposition, good culture, good personality, his practice probably isn't going to grow at the same pace as somebody who has done a good job of value of, of establishing that. So the good news is I don't have to do that. And it wouldn't be good if I were doing that because I might be the guy who is okay with the 4% <laughs> and someone else wouldn't. Right. So uh, it's, it, it takes care of itself is in the rankings is the uh, short answer to that question. Let, let's talk about that 4% because that is, of course, an anecdotal funny number. You're making a point. Um, I don't, I've never heard of any advisor in the U.S. charging such a high fee. But let's talk about fees because that is a, a pretty important element of the relationship and, and the experience. In the old days, it was commission-based business. You bought stocks and you paid commissions for trading. Every time you bought, every time you sold, the broker made a commission. That has given way largely. It still exists in the marketplace, but for the most part, commissions have fallen by the wayside because consumers were always concerned about the conflict of interest. Is this person telling me to buy and sell because he was trying to generate a commission or because it's really in my best interest? When you have a fee, the fee is detached from the transaction so that there isn't that obvious conflict of interest. So talk about what the range of fees that you see and what you feel are appropriate uh, that should raise a red flag or, or what have you. Talk about fees broadly, Matt. So fees are getting complicated because, you know, um, if, you, if you're an investment only client and that's all somebody is, is managing for you, that fee should be pretty low uh, unless they're doing really bespoke specific stuff for you, you know. You want to invest in Russian timber trusts or something, and this is the expert who does it. You know, you know, God bless that. That that can probably cost you some money, right? Or you, um, but um, you know, the first thing to start with is what are the range of services that you're availing yourself of with the advisor? Um, you know, the the standard has always been, as as most people know, one percent of the assets that an advisor is managing for you that that will be the fee and. You know, if you're just doing the basic math in your head, if an advisor is, you know, getting you five, six, seven, eight percent on average over years on your um, uh, investments, you know, you, you lop one percent off of that, and that feels okay, right? The trick is, you know, if you have a hundred thousand dollars with an advisor, that that's not a huge, absolute sum of money that you're that you're paying to the advisor, and honestly, the advisor has to probably charge that much, that percentage. Um, just to make it worth his or her while to, to manage your money at that, you know, a hundred thousand dollars isn't jump change, but it's, that's that no one, an advisor isn't getting filthy rich on that either. There's startup costs. There's everything that, that they have to pay for. So 1% at that 
level might make sense. It's drifting lower as we as as things get more competitive. But when you get up closer to like a million dollars or a million and a half dollars in in in, in assets that that um, an advisor is managing for you, that fee starts that one percent starts to get to be a pretty big number. Yeah, that's ten thousand dollars. It's ten thousand dollars a year. It's exactly this is exactly the the reckoning I myself did, and you. You kind of go like, what am I getting for $10,000? And how is that different than when I was paying $5,000? And it isn't any different at all. So is that really a good way to go? Um, I think along with any conversation you'll have with a prospective financial advisor or even the person you're working with now is, what am I getting for this and why? And are there other things I'm not availing myself of for what I'm paying and that I should be? And then down to, Maybe you negotiate your fee down. That was the conversation I had with my advisor. I said, you're charging me 1%. This is too much for what I'm doing. You can you can either bring me down to like 80 basis points, uh, you know, 0.8%, uh, or you can, you know, I can go someplace else. When I went someplace else, I am now have much better service, very directly aimed at the things that I want and need. Um, and uh, I am paying probably on, on average, probably close to like 40 basis points. So ha- half of what that would be what I asked. That raises another interesting element to this. The fee you're saying, Matt, is negotiable. Fee is 100% negotiable. Um, if advisors are really good, they're going to say, this is my fee. I'm not really going to move on it. Here's why. And now you're now you're having a conversation about whether you're a good match for what they're they're doing, right? So you know, you could go into a French restaurant and say, uh, I want to have a meal. It's $100. I don't want to pay $100. You're like, that's what we do. You get three courses. It's big. It's really, really good. M- maybe you want to go to, a, you know, a, a diner or something that's better suited for, for what for what you're looking for, for this particular thing. That's probably a bad example. But you, you get the idea. You, you, there, there are times where the, the French restaurant is not going to say, okay, we'll take the salad off and it's, and it's $90. This is, this is what, this is what we do. And this is what you're paying for. Right. Um, so I think most of that comes back to having some idea. And this, this is free. You go out you talk to three advisors and you ask them uh, about what they offer and why, and you educate yourself. It, it becomes a really, it could, it's something that could really save you a lot of money as you refine what you want out of your advisor. And then, uh, go and find an advisor who can provide it at a, at a competitive rate. We're talking with Matt Bartelli. He's the executive editor of the Dow Jones Wealth and Asset Management Group, and he's the leader of the team that produces the annual rankings of the top advisors in the country for Barron's Magazine. Let me invert the conversation here, Matt, and talk about the world of advising from the advisor's perspective to give a little behind-the-scenes look for the sake of investors who are paying attention to this conversation. What are the issues that you are finding advisors are facing today? What are the advisors complaining to you about that they have to deal with that isn't something that clients would necessarily see on a daily basis? Uh, So the the biggest thing is sort of an aging white male uh, workforce, uh, particularly at the high end of of this industry. Um, If you sort the 6,000 or 8,000 people in a given year who give us hundreds of columns, 120 columns of data on their practices, uh, and you sort them by gender and ethnicity, uh, it is, you know, 59 to 62-year-old white males. And you, it, it's unbelievable to me every year how, how top-heavy that is with that. Now, there's two things about that. First is, I still don't fully understand 
why that is. I mean, uh, there's there's a million forces that get into the white male aspect of this, which which that could be another podcast, Rick. Um, but the 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 age element of this is huge too, where most of the people who have done a really good job uh, as financial advisors have kind of dragged the industry into the state, the evolved state that it's in now. Um, they've built their practices from just being people who used to cold call in the 1990s or 1980s to get clients, uh, started out as commission-based people, have had their teams evolve into something that's that's much more holistic, that does a much better job of taking care of whole clients, isn't doing commission-based stuff anymore. Um, but guess what? Along the way, they now have, they, they've become not advisors, but people in charge of organizations, small organizations and teams, which maybe they didn't sign up for. Uh, some are good at it, some are not so good at it. And now they're trying to figure out, how do I hand this off to another generation so this thing endures past me when I'm not 62, but I'm 68 and I start to sunset out of this thing? And that's a big question to answer. Uh, and people are not addressing it really, really well. They're struggling. A lot of people are struggling with it. It's not because they're stupid. It's not because they're bad at it. They're kind of pioneers at this. This is the first wave of advisors who have evolved and are kind of facing, how do I have this endure? It used to be advisors would be like, I'm done. Sell my practice. I get out. I get a check. I don't, you know, good luck clients with the new guy. Many more are trying to do a good job of making this thing that they built, this team, endure beyond them, uh, to carry on with the, you know, the ethics and the ethos that they built into their practice over the years um, and to, to have that continue to serve clients into the future and multiple generations of clients. So that's a big enchilada I just described there, a big burrito full of stuff. But mainly it's like older, very accomplished advisors trying to figure out how to have this thing live on past them and take the best of what they've learned and inject it into their um, into this practice that will live past them. And to continue to serve clients of multiple generations, they can't, they're having a real tough time finding those people to come in and do and do these jobs in this industry. So it's a it's a it's an industry desperate for an injection of uh, young talent and specifically young women. We haven't even gotten into that, but it's you know, 19, this industry is 19% women, despite all of these efforts to kind of, to kind of change that. It's just starting to change now. And these organizations that I described, you know, RIA, independent firms, advisory firms, teams at the big firms, this is the mechanism that's starting to bring in more young women, more young people, and more young people of color into the industry that, that has not had it historically. And I think, I think that is really going to change the face of, the kinds of services that people on the receiving end receive, that clients receive, because they're going to see a, a wider range of people, which brings a whole new bunch of perspectives into the services and type of uh, service they're going to receive. And of course, as you know, you've you've articulated within that me. I mean that that's been my journey. I'm I'm that sixty five year old, sixty five year old white male who has been in this industry for 40 years and looking at my transition and trying to make sure that my departure from Edelman Financial would not be disruptive to the firm, to the staff, to the planners, to the clients for providing that continuity that Gene and I had built over the decades in running that practice. Uh, and we engaged in a six-year transitionary period to execute exactly that, to your exact point that a lot of the advisors in my practice were older than me, in fact, and many have since retired, recruiting younger, newer 
talent, women of color, uh, and um, bringing in the diversity that this industry has failed to produce over the decades. So yeah, you're exactly right. We've gone through that exact same thing. And I find myself often mad in conversation with other advisors around the country who turn to me asking, Rick, how'd you do it? And what did you experience? And uh, because you're right, we're all pioneering this. This has never happened before because we're all first gen. There's never been an RIA before my generation. We invented this industry and we're the first going through all these elements. And so, yeah, it's uh, a really important element. The way I would translate all of the above, Matt, to an actionable step for the client for you, the investor, is to acknowledge that your advisor one day will leave. Perhaps involuntarily, they're hit by a bus. More likely, voluntarily, they choose to retire. You have to ask yourself, what happens to you when your advisor chooses or simply is not around anymore? Whether it's they're on vacation for two weeks, in the hospital for six months, or in retirement or permanently. What happens to you, your account, your relationship, et cetera? Who do you turn to? If your advisor can't articulate an effective succession plan, that to me would be a red flag. And I'm assuming, Matt, that that's a question on your 120-column table of, you know, tell us about your practice management. It, it is indeed. And so the numbers are not great, even among these really accomplished advisors. Uh, we ask, do you have a succession plan? And then we say, who is your successor? We, we worked really hard. You can ask 30 questions about this that would get to, but we try to ask like two that really cut to the heart of it. And do you have a succession plan? And then if you say you have a succession plan, but you can't say, you know, Rick, Matt is your successor. And if I get hit by a bus, people know they turn to Matt to say, what are we doing now, boss? Uh, if that's not known to the people who are working on your team and to your clients, you don't have a succession plan. Uh, it needs to be both a disaster recovery plan in case something unexpected happens and the orderly transition that you that you were describing with you and Gene, which is over six years, there's going to be this gradual handoff. And the great thing about doing this job for this, this uh, long period of time is I'm able to watch this happen in real time with a lot of the really good practices where you see um, over time, I'll be talking to, there's a, there's a great uh, advisor and Morgan Stanley advisor in Washington, D.C., who I, who I deal with. He's 78 years old now, still working. And he has been working with his number two over the years. And this has been like one of these things where it's, he, he's here and he's here. And now it's like, you know, he's sunsetting out. I don't think Marvin will ever go, go sunset off. Uh, but now his number two is is uh, is the number one, basically. And, and, and he's running things. That has happened. You didn't, you know, you're boiling a frog kind of. You, you don't, didn't even notice it. But now all of a sudden, AJ is this guy, right? Um, that's the way it should work. You should give it enough time for that to work. But clients looking for advisors, when you're asking, you know, if you're looking for four or five questions to ask, one of them should be, what's the succession plan? What does the team look like? Do you have staggered generations? If it's important to you, do you have people who look different, you know, who can who can come at things from a different perspective, who can, uh, people who are younger, people who are from a different race, people who are from, you know, are not all men. Uh, who can come at this from from different angles for you and inject a bunch of um, critical thinking and stuff into the team that you wouldn't have otherwise if, if everybody's the same guy. Well, we've been assuming here, Matt, that everybody who's listening and watching this conversation has an advisor or is interested in finding a better or more suitable fit of an advisor. 
But the fact is that the minority of Americans have advisors. The majority do not have a financial advisor. What's preventing them from getting one? Well, I, th- I think for starters, you know, we're, we're coming off of a, of a 10 or 12 year period where like take my own kid who's, who's coming home from college. We'll be upstairs soon. Um, you know, he had $1,100 left over from, you know, first communion money and stuff. And he threw it into a robo betterment account. Right. So robo investing did a model portfolio. And that thing was earning like 26 percent a year just sitting there um, until until recently. So. I think there has been this sense over the last decade or so that you you don't really need anybody helping you with investing. And that was probably true uh, looking back. The place where an advisor comes in and can really help you. So th- what is it? It's about 40% of adults have financial advisors. Is that, is that what you, I'm sure, I'm sure Financial Engines has a real good idea of that. Is that about right. what it is? Okay. About that. So 60% is, is unadvised, right? Or 60% of the people in the States are unadvised. Um, if all you care about is investing and you think you could do it yourself, you you were a rock star for a period there. Um, again, I, I will put myself up as, as an example of this. The pandemic started, the bottom dropped out. I went to my advisor. This is, I transitioned to my new advisor and I was like, Maureen, what are we doing? Like, do, is the whole bottom going to completely drop out of this thing? And she was like, you're not touching anything. Like, leave it be. You should know better than anybody else. You work for freaking barons and you and you deal with financial advisors. Why are you even talking to me? Hang up the phone. So I did. And, you know, if if you look at what happened and what would have happened if I put all my money under, under a mattress there, it, it, it would have affected my retirement, like the, the way I would be able to retire. I'm, I'm 57 years old. So the answer to that is why why would you want a financial advisor is for that. There are a few events or a few periods in time you could go over this thing and say, yeah, I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. Then you can't. And now you've created a, a situation where there isn't somebody awake at the switch and you lost 40% of your assets and you're not really going to figure out a way to get them back. Or you're going to do something stupid to try to get them back like you would at the racetrack. So that's the number one reason. And then the, the number two reason would be another kind of black swanish kind of event in your personal financial life, like you know, long-term care, things along those lines, like one bad illness and you're not prepared for it can wipe out everything that you that you thought you were preparing for. Uh, you know, advisors could do a really good job. This is a great question to ask is, you know, how can you help me? Of what black swan, what, what terrible events can you help me avoid that will let me keep going like this uh, rather than having something that, that I can't recover from at some point in my thing? That's, that's where I think they bring the real value on the investing front. Um, and then, of course, you know, if you have a lot of money, there are a lot of there are a lot of advisors who come in with a tax person and just say, I just saved you, you know, an enormous amount of money going forward because I did some very basic things that you weren't doing. There's a whole range of things along those lines that, that you might think you're doing a great job on and you're not. And um, it's all a matter, I think, if you boil it down to somebody who's awakened at the switch all the time rather than you who's doing all your other stuff and comes to it every once in a while and might miss something that would damage you in a real long-term way. And our final question for you, Matt, regarding that very point, are there any topics or uh, issues that are emerging that are not traditional within the field of advice that you find advisors, the very best advisors are beginning to pay attention to that the vast majority of advisors are not yet? 
and more importantly, the vast majority of consumers and investors are not yet focusing. The thing that I'll plant one idea in, in your mind as you answer this, one that comes to my mind is the issue of longevity. So do you find that the very best advisors are forward thinking and talking about stuff with their clients that clients wouldn't otherwise consider? So advisors who deal with the wealthiest people, you're not going to outlive your money if you have $50 million unless you're spending it wantonly, right? Um, the, the big issue is if I'm not going to live till 81, I'm going to live till 111, which I know is this stuff is near and dear to your heart with the, the, uh, you know, singularity and all, all the advances that are happening in medicine and technology. And, you know, there's a lot of talk out there that your lifespan is really, really going to extend. So what does that mean when you retire at age 65 uh, and now you have not 20 years or 17 years worth of, of living to do, but you have 40, 40 years or 35 years? It's, it's not a minor thing, right? So are the best advisors dealing with that? I would say the best advisors are grappling with that. I don't know that anybody has has fully uh, appreciated what what you're going to do about that. What do you do if it's not 17 years and it doubles to 35 years, which it could, your, your life expectancy and the time you're going to have to make your retirement savings last. I think this is the single biggest issue uh, facing people. And it's a little like the AI thing. Like everybody knows this is something... That could be a complete disaster and a time bomb, and it could come on really, really fast, but it's like so overwhelming, you don't even know what to do about it. I think the place you start is to start to talk to your advisor about what can you do to adjust the old school thinking of this is this is how we simulate how long you're going to live and all this, all the actuarial tables and stuff. What have you done to start to adapt to the fact that people live longer and maybe I will? And what, what should I be thinking at the extreme end of how long I might survive? Uh, versus what the you know what the average might say, and you know help help adjust accordingly. You'll probably be doing your advisor a favor by asking that to push them and nudge them into the direction of doing that. But you know it's a big open question, and it's it isn't something um, I don't think the industry is has fully reckoned with yet. So you need an advisor. You need to talk with your advisor about longevity. You need to talk to your advisor about the services they're providing, the fees that they're charging, how they can be of greatest value to you, and to get the help you need in finding an advisor who's right for you, turn to the Barron's rankings of the top advisors in the country. And that means you need to be subscribing to Barron's, which is mandatory reading for every advisor in this nation. Matt Bartell, executive editor of Dow Jones Wealth and Asset Management Group. Always a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Rick, you too. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up next on The Truth About Your Future, how much Bitcoin do Bitcoin miners get? We're going to talk about that when we return. Where do you store your important documents? How do you keep track of what you have or where it is? Use Presidio, the digital vault where you can collect, protect, and share all your important people, places, things, and documents with all the key people in your life. What you have and where you have it. You'll always know where your valuable information is kept, and you can easily and securely share your info anytime with anyone you choose. Try Presidio free today at presidio.com. That's P-R-I-S-I-D-I-O dot com. Presidio. Support for Rick Edelman's podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. 
Meet Henry, an everyday person who enjoys reading science fiction, keeping in shape at the gym, and spending time with family. He also participates in progress by investing in a fund that supports innovative ideas. Invesco QQQ ETF allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100, so you don't have to be a rocket scientist to help push progress forward. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is The Truth About Your Future. I'm Rick Edelman. Last week, I told you about Bitcoin mining. Miners are the people who do those complex computer calculations to validate the data that's on the Bitcoin blockchain. If you're confused about what I just said, just go listen to last week's show where I explained all this. The link's in the show notes. But how much Bitcoin do Bitcoin miners get when they engage in mining? Well, back in 2009, miners were rewarded with 50 Bitcoins every time they solved one of those puzzles every 10 minutes. Well, they don't get 50 Bitcoins anymore. Every four years, the reward for mining gets cut in half. It's called the having or havening. Take your choice as to which word you prefer, having or havening. Anyway, in 2012, the reward was cut from 50 bitcoins to 25. In 2016, it was cut again to 12 and a half. And in 2020, it was cut once more to six and a quarter. That's the reward that Bitcoin miners get today when they solve those complex calculations, six and a quarter bitcoins. And the reward is going to get cut again in 2024, just six or eight months from now, to three and an eighth. The fact that these mining rewards get cut roughly every four years, they get cut in half, this is a basic reason why so many people say that the price of Bitcoin keeps doubling. I mean, think about it. If a miner gets only half as many Bitcoin as before, then they want each Bitcoin to be worth twice as much. So with another having coming in 2024, will the price of Bitcoin double again? It's doubled every time so far there's been a having. We're going to, of course, have to wait and see what happens this time around. Personally, I do expect a doubling or more to occur, but there's no guarantee. I encourage you to learn more about all of this. You can do so by reading my number one Amazon bestseller, The Truth About Crypto. Lately, it seems like buzz around ChatGPT and the potential of generative AI is everywhere. But this trend didn't appear from the blue. It reflects years of innovation by many leading-edge companies. Looking to add AI exposure to your portfolio? Rather than try to pick individual winners, consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks across the emerging AI frontier. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. 
Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hey, if you've got a little downtime this summer, who doesn't? You can catch up on past episodes of this podcast at thetafe.com. You know we cover the five personal finance topics that matter most. Longevity, retirement security, exponential technologies, digital assets, and health and wellness. It's thetafe.com. The link is in the show notes. See you Monday. The truth about your future with Rick Edelman has been brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ, Invesco Distributors, Inc., and by Presidio, offering a digital vault where you can collect, protect, and share all your important people, places, things, and documents with all the key people in your life. Start for free at Presidio.com. Get the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. It's the truthayf.com.